Hi, folks, and welcome back to the book review podcast this week. This is Unknown Friends, and I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wham Productions. This week, you are listening to episode 21 of season two. And if you enjoy the podcast, I hope you subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends about it. And we have a Patreon page as well, if you're interested in donating to support the podcast and getting bonus content in return. You'll find more details on that in the episode description. Now, today I am reviewing a classic that I hope you've heard of, if not already read, Oscar Wilde's novel The Picture of Dorian Gray. Now, there are so many things to be said about this book and about this author, and I'm not going to have time to say them all, but the long and short of it is this is a remarkable, insightful novel that is well worth reading, created by a writer I strongly disagree with in many of his beliefs. So let's just dive right into this controversy. Oscar Wilde lived a comparatively short but eventful life. He was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1854, the middle child of three, and his father was a celebrated surgeon and philanthropist, while his mother was a poet and an activist. Oscar Wilde received an excellent education and proved himself to be an exceptional student. He was very intelligent and talented and won seemingly endless awards and scholarships and honors throughout his teens and early 20s. First, he studied classics at Trinity College in Dublin, and his first year there, he came out at the top of his class, and in his finals there, he won the college's most prestigious academic award, and he then won a scholarship to continue studying classics at Oxford University. So in 1874, he moved on to Oxford, to Magdalen College, where he studied greats, as they called classical studies. And when he finished his bachelor's degree in 1878, he graduated with the highest honors. So obviously a brilliant academic. Now, meanwhile, religiously and philosophically, Oscar Wilde was exploring Thanks in part to the writings of Walter Pater and John Ruskin, who were both Victorian literary and art critics, Wilde began to be drawn into what's known as the aesthetic art movement, which, to oversimplify it, asserts that art should be created first and foremost to be beautiful, rather than to fulfill some moral purpose or communicate some truth. Art for art's sake, you could call kind of the slogan of the aesthetic movement. Um, Art for art's sake, as opposed to art for truth's sake, which is an opposing philosophy. So Wilde developed his beliefs about art kind of along these lines of aestheticism. Now, as we'll discuss, it certainly seems like he had moral purposes in a work like The Picture of Dorian Gray. So I don't think we can we can strictly put Oscar Wilde in the box of the aesthetic movement. Um, but the, the aesthetic philosophy is certainly very present in his life and in his art. Anyway, so he's college age. He's figuring out what he believes about art and literature. 
he's also trying to figure out what he believes spiritually, which, of course, overlaps somewhat with his artistic and, and literary philosophies. He became a Freemason for a short time while at Oxford, but that kind of fizzled out. He was also fascinated with Catholicism. Now, as a baby, he had been baptized in the Anglican Church, and as a young boy, he had also been baptized by a Catholic priest as a result of his mother becoming interested in Catholicism and wanting her children to be re-baptized. So Wilde personally was not a Catholic, but while at Oxford, he seriously considered converting. He read voraciously from Catholic writers like John Henry Newman, and at one point he had actually decided to be baptized again into the Catholic Church. And the baptism was scheduled, but at the last minute, Wilde backed out on the day of and sent flowers instead of showing up himself. So Wilde remained attracted to Catholicism throughout his life, but he never officially converted. Um, Although on his deathbed, he did receive the last rites from a Catholic priest. Now, as far as his career, it had a slow start and a short peak, but there was a time when he was quite famous and very popular. For the first 10 years or so after he graduated, he focused on journalism and literary criticism mostly, um, and he also wrote children's fairy tales that were published first in magazines and then as compiled collections, and those brought him a little bit of fame. But then in 1890-91, he wrote his one and only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. At its first publication, the book was shorter than the novel we have now, and it was published in a magazine in the summer of 1890, and then afterward Wilde expanded it into the novel we know, which was published in 1891. We will talk more about the expansion of the book in a minute. The novel was highly controversial at the time. It was not received well by most people, though a few praised it. And Oscar Wilde defended his work zealously. And then over the next four years, ironically, Wilde achieved short-lived but immense popularity, not really with his prose, but with his plays. So this is the beginning of the 1890s, and this is when he produced the works he is best remembered for, all plays. Lady Windermere's Fan, A Woman of No Importance, An Ideal Husband, and lastly, and most famously, The Importance of Being Earnest. These are his sparkling, scathing social comedies, full of the characteristic, epigrammatic wittiness that Oscar Wilde is so well known for. Um, And by all accounts, the man himself was a brilliant conversationalist, very quick on his feet, and just full of witticisms which is very believable when you see the plays that he created. And you also see it in the the dialogue in Dorian Gray as well. Anyway, these plays were a huge success, and this was most definitely the high point in Wilde's career. And then he had a very quick downfall. The rest of this biography is a very sad story, 
I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I do have to back up slightly first. Back in 1884, when he was 29, Oscar Wilde got married, and uh, he and his wife, Constance, soon had two sons, and things seemed to be okay at first. But after just a few years, Wilde was less and less with his family, and long story short, he eventually began living a homosexual lifestyle. It's not clear how much his wife knew or whether she knew about it at all for a while, um, but he developed multiple long-term gay relationships, and he also started frequenting homosexual brothels. Now, of course, this was incredibly scandalous at the time and also just illegal, so it was a huge secret, although, truth be told, Wilde and his partners were not always very discreet. The long and short of it is, just days after the premiere performance of The Importance of Being Earnest, Wilde was publicly accused of, quote, posing as a sodomite. And against the advice of some of his friends, Wilde actually brought a charge of libel against his accuser. Well, of course, that drug the whole thing into court in a way that ended up actually revealing his lifestyle and definitively confirming the original accusation. So this was an immense scandal, especially since it involved someone of Wilde's celebrity status. And in the end, Wilde was sentenced to two years in prison with hard labor. That was obviously a very difficult experience for him, and after his release, he was an advocate for prison reform, not surprisingly. Um, But he did not survive long after his release. Uh, So he was imprisoned from 1895 to 97, and then as soon as he was free, he left England, never to return, and he moved to France. Uh, His wife, by the way, had changed her and her son's last name to try to protect the three of them from the whole scandal, and they had moved to Switzerland, but she died in 1898, leaving her teenage sons in the care of her family. They never saw their father again after he was imprisoned. Um, In France, Wilde reunited with a couple of his previous partners And he continued writing some, but he had lost his money, he had lost his reputation, and he was in poor health. And on November 30th, 1900, he died of meningitis, shortly after a Catholic priest had given him the last sacraments, as I mentioned before. So, a tragic story. Um, I think it's clear why Oscar Wilde was and still is a highly controversial writer. Uh, Now, I want to say a bit more about the publication history of The Picture of Dorian Gray, but I think it will help if I first introduce you to the book's plot and characters. So, Dorian Gray, as you might expect, is the main character, and in the novel he is flanked by two other characters who both contribute in different ways to shape Dorian's destiny. So on the one hand, you have the artist Basil Hallward, who paints the picture of Dorian Gray referenced in the title. And on the other hand, you have Lord Henry Wotton, who becomes one of Dorian's best friends and shapes much of his thinking, and as a result, his behavior. So 
Dorian Gray at the start of the novel is a very young man. He is naive and to some extent, although not entirely, I would argue, uh, an innocent figure. And he is basically the handsomest guy ever. So everyone who sees him is just struck by his youth and good looks. And the painter, Basil Hallward, is no exception. Basil is idealistic and, you could argue, well-intentioned, but he is totally fascinated by Dorian Gray, uh, unhealthily fascinated by him, and flatters him, and Dorian becomes kind of uh, a muse for Basil's art. And then Basil eventually paints Dorian's portrait, which he is convinced is the masterpiece of his life. It's a beautiful picture, and when Lord Henry sees it, he is curious about this young man and wants to meet him. Now, Lord Henry does not become enthralled by Dorian the way Basil does, but he is interested in Dorian and, I would say, comes to view Dorian not as a muse, but perhaps as a project. Lord Henry really becomes the guiding influence in Dorian's life, and not in a good way. Lord Henry is very worldly, very knowing, wittily cynical about everything and everyone, flippant, immoral, and on and on. And whereas Basil is, you could say, under the spell of Dorian Gray, Dorian soon falls under Lord Henry's spell. They become best friends, they're always together, and in short, Lord Henry teaches Dorian to pursue pleasure first and foremost in life, to pursue sensation and variety of experience. Now, Dorian doesn't just immediately become a corrupt hedonist, but he starts heading in that direction. At first, it seems all very innocent. He falls in love with a poor but beautiful young actress she is all the world to him. He will, you know, he will never be so in love with anyone else. Life is a dream. And I won't spoil how all that plays out in the story, but if you couldn't tell from my tone of voice, his ideas about love and about this girl are not really founded in reality. And I'm not going to tell you too much more than that about the storyline, or I'll risk ruining the book's plot twists. But all in all, this is the story of Dorian Gray's pursuit of pleasure and how that does or does not work out for him as the years go by. Um, and of course, it's also about the picture of Dorian Gray that Basil painted at the start of the story. It's a very strange picture. It's a perfect likeness. It's beautiful. And when Dorian first sees it, he is so enamored by his own good looks, frankly, his looks and his youth, that he makes the comment he wishes he could always stay as young and healthy and beautiful as he appears in this picture. In fact, he wishes he could sort of trade places with the picture, if only it would somehow grow old over the years and lose its beauty while Dorian himself could retain all the freshness of youth that Basil's painting captured. A rash wish, perhaps, especially if it should happen to come true. 
So that's as far as I'll go with the plot summary so as to try to preserve the novel's surprises. I want now to go back very briefly and describe in what ways Oscar Wilde changed and expanded the novel from its original magazine publication to the form it took in 1891 when it was published as a book. So it was substantially shorter at first. Oscar Wilde's revisions made the story, I think, about half again as long as it was originally. It had previously had only 13 chapters and ended up with 20. So he added a lot of material, um, especially related to the young actress that Dorian falls in love with early on. Wilde gave her more backstory and character and really created a whole subplot that wasn't there originally, revolving around her brother, who disappears for a while but returns later in the novel. He also added a couple of chapters involving conversations between Lord Henry and various other members of society, talking largely about Dorian Gray. So these dialogues incorporate a lot of Oscar Wilde's famous epigrammatic wit, and critique of Victorian society. And they also give us a different angle on Dorian when we hear his character and his background discussed by others. And then lastly, these conversations also explore a more nuanced philosophy of art than Wilde had included in the original version of the novel. As I mentioned earlier, Wilde was deeply influenced by the critic Walter Pater's aestheticism, but also by John Ruskin's philosophy of art, which saw more of a moral purpose in literature and other art forms. And Wilde seems somewhat conflicted between these two philosophies, and kind of tries to marry them somehow in the picture of Dorian Gray. Anyway, all that gets explored a bit more thoroughly in his revised novel. And then the other main change he made was that he toned down some language here and there that had outraged some of his original readers because it was considered indecent. Things like Basil Hallward feeling a romantic kind of attraction to Dorian Gray. Wilde revised some of the language so that Basil instead speaks of Dorian as an ideal, uh, an inspiration for his art. Um, so there is still, especially to anyone who knows Wilde's life story, there are fairly clear suggestions that Basil does experience homosexual attraction, but it's just not quite as obvious as it was in the first version of the book. Now, the storyline of The Picture of Dorian Gray is very interesting for many reasons, but something I always find fascinating about a well-written novel is the way in which it draws from and refers to older classics. Um, a man as incredibly well-educated as Oscar Wilde was bound to draw inspiration from the classics, and Dorian Gray's story is absolutely teeming with illusions um, and, and patterns from older literary works. So let's start with uh, Faust. The legend of Dr. Faustus is centuries old, and has taken many different forms. But essentially, the fable goes that this man, Faust, made a deal with the devil to exchange his own soul for some kind of worldly gain, knowledge, 
pleasure, power, something of that kind. Now, Oscar Wilde once said that in every first novel, the hero is the author as Christ or Faust. In every first novel, the hero is the author as Christ or Faust. Now, in a moment, we'll get to Oscar Wilde being the hero of this novel. But first, is Dorian Gray a Christ figure or a Faust figure? Definitely Faust. The wish he makes that his portrait might grow old and ugly while he miraculously retains his youth, ultimately this amounts to a kind of deal with the devil, although that's not explicit. So Faust is a major source of inspiration for Dorian Gray, and so are the works of Shakespeare. I actually wrote a paper on this topic during my undergrad, not a very good paper, but the process of researching and writing it did teach me a few things. I wrote on the presence of Shakespeare's tragedies Hamlet and Othello in the picture of Dorian Gray. As the novel develops, Dorian pretty clearly becomes a kind of Hamlet figure, um, and more subtly, he also becomes a bit like Othello. And meanwhile, other characters in the novel clearly reflect side characters in those two Shakespeare plays. So for anyone who's familiar with the plays, in the novel you've got clear Ophelia and Laertes parallels, and then you can also see figures that represent Desdemona and Iago from the tragedy of Othello. Anyway, I really enjoy discussing Shakespeare, but I won't go any deeper into that. You can always look into it more yourself if you want to. Uh, but more generally, theater is pervasive in Oscar Wilde's novel. Not just Shakespeare, but just the language of drama keeps cropping up. Dorian Gray views his life almost like a play, a tragedy on a stage, and so does Lord Henry, who enjoys being a spectator of the drama of Dorian Gray's life. And of course, when an author starts using that kind of language, you immediately want to look out for themes of artificiality and hypocrisy versus truth. Which characters are playing a part or living a lie, and which characters are genuine? So those are some of the literary influences shaping the picture of Dorian Gray, but I also want to touch on this idea of Oscar Wilde himself as the hero of his novel. Now, Wilde said once, Basil Hallward is what I think I am, Lord Henry is what the world thinks of me, Dorian is what I would like to be, in other ages perhaps. Now, having read the novel through to its end, I have a hard time imagining anyone wanting to be Dorian Gray. But, be that as it may, this is an enlightening, if somewhat confusing, comment from the author. The first two comparisons I can very clearly see. So Basil Hallward, the idealistic artist who is perhaps unwise, but means well, or thinks he means well, and who is enamored of the promising handsome young Dorian Gray, this is how Oscar Wilde sees himself. I get that. Um, I also get that society as a whole perceived Oscar Wilde as more similar to the flippant, loose-moraled Lord Henry. But regardless of how ridiculous it seems to me to want to be like Dorian Gray, there clearly are 
autobiographical elements of Oscar Wilde in his portrayal of Dorian. By the time the novel was published in 1891, Wilde was already living a double life, which is exactly the situation that Dorian eventually finds himself in. Um, and this ties into those themes of hypocrisy and, and playing a part. Wilde had a wife and kids. He was trying to maintain at least a semi-respectable reputation as a somewhat well-known writer and speaker. But in his free time, he was doing things entirely unacceptable and even criminal in Victorian England. So he undoubtedly had a conflicted conscience much of the time. He was, he was burdened by the reality of his life that he was hiding from his family and from the world. And Dorian Gray feels weighed down by his secrets too. In fact, the psychology of Dorian is, is rather remarkable. The way he and his conscience interact is kind of scarily unhealthy and realistic. And I'm pretty sure it comes at least in part from Oscar Wilde's own experiences and thoughts. Of course, Dorian Gray was published a couple years before Wilde's lifestyle was exposed to the public, and yet the novel almost feels a bit confessional. And, and this is what has always amazed me about Oscar Wilde and this book in particular. The novel truthfully portrays the corruption of a soul by sin. And it puts it in those terms. In Oscar Wilde's own words, Dorian does all kinds of sinful and corrupt things in his reckless pursuit of pleasure. He ruins countless lives, makes a, a terrible, scandalous reputation for himself. Now, thankfully, the novel does not go into detail about Dorian's experiences, but enough is given just in summary, discreetly, that you know he lives a horribly self-centered life and goes deep into what even he himself calls sin. And he destroys nearly all his friends in the process. There is remarkable truth in this story. Now, I think the biggest complication comes when the novel tries to identify the cause of Dorian's soul corruption. I mean, yes, Wilde communicates that Dorian suffers the consequences of sin, but what gets a little blurry is who or what is to blame for starting Dorian on this path of corruption. He supposedly was innocent at the start of the story. Well, was he truly? Dorian himself blames Basil Hallward for making him vain, and blames Lord Henry for corrupting his ideas. Now, I would agree that both Basil and Lord Henry, in different ways, pushed Dorian in an unhealthy direction in life. But could Dorian have resisted? It's not entirely Basil and Lord Henry's fault, surely. And this is where we get into one aspect of the novel that I'm a little unsure of. Oscar Wilde himself was a fairly superstitious person, and in the novel we see a lot of language of destiny. There's a sense of fatalism about Dorian's story. Um, of course, it's not entirely clear how much of this fatalistic mindset is just Dorian's 
skewed perspective and how much Oscar Wilde actually believes. But at least Dorian has this sense that he couldn't really fight the corruption of his soul. It was Basil and Lord Henry's fault that he started on this pursuit of pleasure, and once on that path, it was sort of too late to turn back. Interestingly, Dorian does try to turn back a couple of times, but you just get this sense that everything is conspiring against him and he cannot break free. Now, admittedly, there there is truth in this, in that sin does enslave souls. And it's difficult to say whether there's ever a point in life at which it's too late for a soul to be freed. It can be very, very, very hard to break those chains after a certain point. But of course, from a Christian perspective, I believe that with God, there's always hope. And yet it's hard to find an accurate balance when trying to communicate the experience of a soul enslaved in corruption, because I don't think it's true to portray this kind of situation as utterly hopeless, and yet it is true to portray it as very, very dark indeed. It's basically impossible to overstate the consequences of sin. But, sorry, I'm sidetracking a little. What I'm trying to say is, Oscar Wilde in this novel leans on the hopeless side of things. This is not a redemption story. It is a grim warning. So because of that, I would not say that it communicates the whole truth of life. But I think it does capture an aspect of reality that we need to be reminded of from time to time. Now, I need to wrap this up. I do recommend The Picture of Dorian Gray. Personally, I have read the book at least twice now, and I definitely got more out of it on a reread. Um, And for me, it became much more powerful after I knew Oscar Wilde's life story as well and got an idea of where he was coming from. Uh, It's not a book for kids, I hope that's obvious, but I think teens can handle it, certainly more mature teens. Even though the novel is about pretty terrible things, it doesn't go into those things in detail, which I certainly appreciate. Uh, The relationships and drugs and all kinds of things that Dorian tries in his mad race for pleasure, those are just summarized or even just hinted at. What the book focuses on is really his conscience uh, and the change in his way of thinking over time. It's a very psychological and somewhat philosophical book. So yeah, thankfully the reader does not have to um, experience Dorian's hedonistic life. We know stuff happens, but we don't have to live through it with him. That said, there is one exception. To me, the most disconcerting moment in the novel is a scene where briefly, but somewhat graphically, a murder takes place. Um, And then you're also kind of in the murderer's head for a little while, which is not pleasant. Um, It could be a lot worse, honestly, a lot more twisted and and yucky. But even so, it's, it's still not a pleasant scene to read. So just keep that caveat in mind, especially if you are more sensitive to violence in stories. 
What's most important to me is that the violence here is not portrayed positively. What happens is clearly very wrong, and so that keeps us on some kind of moral ground. But yeah, all in all, a fascinating book, deeply thought-provoking, and if you've not read it, I encourage you to do so. There's so much more in it than I was even able to mention in this review, which is why it has endured so well and become a classic, despite the poor reception at the time of its first publication. So there you have it. Thanks for listening to today's review, and I hope you tune in again next week for episode 22 of the season. I will be doing something a little unusual in that next Wednesday's episode will introduce a book series that will actually take two weeks to fully discuss. So I am excited to talk with you guys about The Chronicles of Pridane, written by Lloyd Alexander. This is a five-book children's fantasy series written in the 60s. I really enjoyed reading these chronicles for the first time this spring, and I look forward to sharing some thoughts about them with you all over the next two episodes. So that's what's coming up. In the meantime, remember to subscribe to the Unknown Friends podcast and leave a review. And if you would be interested in helping to support the podcast financially for as little as $2 a month, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash unknownfriends. And there you can learn all about how to become a patron and get access to various kinds of extra content like bonus episodes and free books in return for your support. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and you can learn more about me and my playwriting at kittywayneproductions.com, linked in the episode description. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.